Welcome to Mind the Shift. I am Anders Bolling, your host. A crucial aspect of shifting minds in a shifting world, which this podcast is all about, is to overcome the artificial dichotomy between science and spirituality. It's uh, difficult to find anything that has a greater potential uh, to have an impact. And Western science has had the upper hand over spirituality for centuries, but perhaps something is changing, perhaps something is moving in, a, in an integrating direction. I yesterday, just yesterday, read an, uh, a mainstream article about a mainstream Swedish uh, uh, film director who is now going to make a film about the fascinating Swedish painting artist Hilma of Klint. And the word spirit, spiritual was mentioned four times in the article. Uh, that's just um, an anecdote, but still. One of the most interesting and inspiring initiatives lately in this shift is the creation of something called the Galileo Commission. It's a project of a worldwide professional community, the Scientific and Medical Network. And the commission's steering committee is led by David Lorimer, who is my guest today. Welcome, David. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you so much, Anders. I'm very happy to be here. Now, you have truly created a lot in your life, apart from having various academic degrees uh, and being a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. You're a writer, a lecturer, and an editor. You founded Character Education Scotland. You are a founding member of the International Futures Forum. And you are a program director of the Scientific and Medical Network. And you've written and edited over, I think, over a dozen books. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yes. So there are titles like The Spirit of Science and Thinking Beyond the Brain. And the latest one is called Quest for Wisdom. And you've also written a book about the ideas and work of the Prince of Wales. Indeed. These are, these are just samples. Uh, and one thing that's also truly interesting and, and relevant for this subject that we are going to delve into, hopefully today, is that you have been the president of the Swedenborg Society. I have, yes. And yeah, that's actually, uh, uh, that's actually a connection to, to the sliver of land that I happen to live in, Sweden. <laughs> uh, so what was it in, about Emanuel Swedenborg that, that drew you into his, his mystical world? Well, that's so interesting because it, it happened quite early on in my path, as it were. And what happened was I, I was studying French literature uh, and particularly the poetry of Baudelaire, Charles Baudelaire. And my tutor gave us the, the Garnier edition, which actually I have behind me in this uh, bookshelf. Um, and uh, one of his most famous poems is called Correspondences, Correspondence in French. And so I was looking through the notes of this and it said that this idea of correspondences was influenced by Swedenborg. So I thought, well, who is this man? And, and so I borrowed a book out of the university library, which was um, <clears throat> a, a biography by a man called Trowbridge. And one evening in my room, I just sat down to read it. And the more I read, the more amazed I was um, to discover that here was someone trained in science and mathematics and engineering uh, he was offered the chair of mathematics at Uppsala University at the age of 27, for instance. Mm. He was one of the great civil engineers of his time. He sat in the upper house of the Swedish parliament. And when he was 55, um, having already written 
a two-volume book on the brain. It's about 750 pages. It's probably the longest book ever written on the brain up until that point. <laughs> and where he, he talks a little bit about possible lateralization of hemisphere functions. He was one of the first people to suggest that. He suddenly had an opening um, and he found himself able to see into what he called the invisible worlds and have conversations with departed people uh, and have various clairvoyant experiences, um, which were well attested at the time. And what was amazing for me was that he, he brought the same kind of dispassionate observational scientific qualities, philosophical qualities, he wrote in Latin still, which is quite unusual, I think, at that stage. Yeah. And he described these extraordinary experiences in completely matter-of-fact terms, uh, as if he was simply describing, you know, going out to lunch with a friend. And, and the, so that was, that was very striking. And so you had these extraordinary experiences narrated in a very ordinary way and with, with really complete conviction. So it was that aspect of it. Um, and you'll find in Heaven and Hell um, is his main book on, on this mm. subject. But also what interested me was his philosophy and one of his main um, theological or spiritual texts uh, was called Divine Love and Wisdom. And in his exegesis of Revelation, for instance, in parts of the Old Testament, what he was always driving at was the spiritual sense, not the literal sense of the scripture. And he, he, he didn't believe at all in the vicarious atonement, the idea that Christ died for our sins on the cross. He thought that was completely wrong. And he even claimed to have argued about this you know, with the deceased spirits of Luther, Calvin and Melanchthon. And so that was my kind of introduction to, uh, to Swedenborg. And, okay. and then I read subsequently, I read a lot of his work and I have more or less his complete works um, in yeah. my library in Scotland. Yeah, he was. I mean, I had to I had to Google him a little bit and, and read about him because I, I, I knew that he had been the president of this society. So, I mean, I'm a Swede, but I, I really didn't know very much about him, just that he was a mystic and all that. He's not very big. I mean, in the mainstream, he's not very big, but there are certain, of course, societies here in Sweden as well who know a lot about him. But uh, well, that's anyway, he, right. he had... and, and I, I think that. I mean, I think Kant is partly responsible for him not being in the mainstream um, ah. because he wrote a book in 1766 called Dreams of a Spirit Seer, in which he didn't even spell his name right. He kind of poured ah. scorn um, on Swedenborg and, and called thinking he was just a, a, a dream, it was just dreams. It was a, he was a spirit seer. He wasn't a serious person. Um, but at the same time, Kant had sent his own detective or his own private investigators to check out um, the um, alleged, some of the alleged you know, clairvoyant experiences. And he was satisfied that they had actually happened. But he said, um, philosophers find themselves, and this is still true in academic um, terms, they find themselves in this position where they can't really believe something because it's beyond their boggle threshold. And yet they can't deny that it happened. And yeah. so they rather ignore it. And um, as we say in the Galileo Commission, they just look, they fail to look through the telescope or they refuse yes. to look through the telescope. And so what was happening in the 1760s, it, it, it was academic fear of reputation is still alive now in the 2020s. That's fascinating. And he had, I mean, as you have been describing, he had this shift, he made this shift in his career from, from uh, traditional or Western science, where he excelled truly, uh, 
into this mm. uh, spiritual realm, you have this spiritual calling. And you yourself, I mean, not to compare you to Swedenborg directly, but still, you started out as a, as a merchant banker. Yes, that was an that was a, an interesting. That seems phase like a shift in, in career as well, because you're not dealing. Yeah, with very much. Well, I th- I come I come from very conventional background, um, and so it was my family's expectation, particularly my father's expectation, that I would go into merchant banking. And we had a cousin who was in this. In, in merchant banking and it was very respectable and he could go to a drinks party and say well my son is working in a merchant bank um, whereas he just couldn't understand my, my son is working for the scientific and medical network he didn't understand what that was about at all <laughs> and, yes. and also when I was a teacher uh, that was fine as well my son teaches at Winchester College and, and so it was difficult for him you know, to be able to explain the unexplainable to, you know, to his friends when it was, it's such a different world. Yeah. So yes, and I, so I kind of pressed the eject button, as I put it, um, from that conventional merchant banking career in 1976 when I was 24. Okay. So that's when your real career started and what you really wanted yes. to dive into. And, and I, 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 I took... Um, four boxes of books with me um, to uh, Champagne, Moët et Chandon, Moët et Chandon, Champagne and Epernay in, 19, in autumn of 1976, which was a very hot year, you might remember. Um, yes. And uh, it was a very early vintage, the first since 1890, earliest since 1893. But interestingly, now it's not unusual at all, you know, 40, 50 years later to have the vintage beginning at the beginning of September or even earlier. And that tells mm. you something about uh, the shift temperatures. Interesting. So let's talk about the Galileo Commission. Uh, can you just, well, simply tell the audience, the listeners and the viewers, what, what the purpose is of Galileo Commission and why the name Galileo? Yes, well, uh, it was a small group of us who, who had the idea. Um, Chris Thompson, who's no longer with us, was one of the initiators. Um, and he was originally going to be writing the, <clears throat> the Galileo report. And, and what, what we were doing was really trying to extend the mission of the network um, to widen horizons in science, medicine, and uh, philosophy and psychology um, by producing a rigorous report um, which was written by Professor Harold Valach. Uh, Harold was an ideal person to write the report because he has two PhDs, one in history of science and one in um, clinical psychology. Uh, and then he also has a background in parapsychology and physics, complementary medicine and, and mind, mind-body issues. And so, you know, he's very, very wide um, range of interest and remit. Uh, and so the idea was to produce um, a rigorous report um, which was looking at the assumptions behind uh, modern science, particularly scientific materialism. And then also the evidence which seems to contradict uh, this and to put forward the proposal that the brain does not produce consciousness in the way that's assumed by 99.9% of scientists, philosophers and psychologists but as William James suggested as far back as 1898, it might in some sense filter or transmit or permit certain ranges of consciousness. And this is really what we were getting at. And I, and I wrote about this in my, my first book, 
um, which I wrote in 1982, nearly 40 years ago, which came out in 1984, called Called Survival. And I was struck by this William James um, SOL lecture, lecture on immortality, and also by other thinkers of the time, Henri Bergson, and the French Nobel Prize for Literature and philosopher, who was hugely popular in his day, but most people have forgotten him now, even in France. And F.C.S. Schiller, who was a philosophy uh, don at Oxford, who'd written something called the uh, Riddles of the Sphinx uh, um, anonymously in 1891. And I imagine he was afraid of what his colleagues would think if he took a different view as well. So the Galileo Commission report um, is in three uh, versions. There is the main report with all the academic references, about 130 pages. There's a summary report, which is more a sort of summary of the argument. And then there is a layman's version. And then in addition to that, there, the, in 11 languages, we have a summary of the argument in two pages, which just sort of boils the whole thing down. And, and um, I think the, the, the proposition is that we need a new philosophy, a new approach, um, which is either what Harold Wallach argues for, which is a dual aspect theory, um, which is similar to David Bohm in some ways, mm. or uh, an idealist view. And some of our advisors, like Eben Alexander, for instance, um, he takes a, an idealist view, Bernardo Kastrup um, also. So there are quite a few people who, there's idealism and the idea that the, the universe is fundamentally mental. Um, mm. It's coming back into fashion as is panpsychism. And why Galileo? Well, um, the, the famous story, um, we actually used not the Cardinals because the, some that, that, that story is not as well attested as a story um, which is in a letter from Galileo to Kepler. Uh, and he said, the professor of philosophy at Padua, here in Padua, refuses to look, pertinaciously refuses to look through my glass. In other words, he won't look to see if there are moons, in Ju moons on Jupiter because he knows in advance this can't be possible. Yeah, and so the so I, don't have to, I don't even have to look, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the parallel is that, is that the scientists not only um, do not look at, by, the, by and large, at evidence which would seem to contradict the premises of scientific materialism, um, they, they actively denigrate such evidence in, in skeptical campaigns, in extreme skeptical campaigns that you have going, for instance, on Wikipedia. Yeah. Um, and and they, they don't feel at all comfortable. But the irony of this whole situation is that if you ask a lot of them personally, have they had um, an experience which would cause them to think there must be more to life than scientific materialism than, than more, to, more to life than just matter. They often will say they have, but they don't dare to admit it to their colleagues who ironically are in exactly the same situation. Yeah. And so, you know, I remember just to make this concrete, um, I remember Ken Ring, who's one of the early um, pioneers of near-death experiences, wrote Life at Death and heading towards Omega in the 1980s and was one of the first presidents of the International Association for Near-Death Studies. He was giving a talk at a book club and there were 10, 10 members of this book club and each of them came up to him before um, the talk saying, well, I've had these interesting experiences because I'd never share them with anybody here because they would think I was mad. And so there's a kind of view here which we really have to break through, not only 
And I think general public is further ahead, but we have to break through this taboo um, where to make these experiences, you know, valid experiences and you know, to be taken seriously. Mm. You said in an interview, I think, on um, an interview for science and non-duality, Sand, uh, some time ago, that, that, that modern science has no clothes. So yes, well, that, that, <clears throat> yes, the emperor has no clothes. In other words, uh, you're, you're, you're looking, you're, you'll look as if everything um, is normal, but actually yeah. it isn't. Um, but I, I, I prefer the telescope um, analogy uh, because yes. it, it, it's, it's exactly, you're refusing to look at evidence. I mean, I can give Rupert Sheldrake, uh, for instance, to just another example. Um, he was having an interview with, um, with Peter Atkins. And Peter Atkins is a professor of physical chemistry at Oxford. And he's one of the most vociferous um, proponents of scientific materialism. He said everything including consciousness, will ultimately be explained on the basis of existing scientific principles. And I remember sitting next to him in Cambridge, actually, at a meeting. Anyway, he, uh, they were discussing telepathy on Radio 5 Live. <clears throat> and um, Rupert had sent in advance some of his peer-reviewed papers on telepathy um, to Peter Atkins. And Peter, he asked if he'd read them and said, of course not. Now, I, I, I know that the telepathy is impossible, so there's no point in reading any papers which um, assumes that it could happen. And this is not scientific. This is not, it's not scientific. It's so unscientific. It's incredible. Really. I mean, what, how, do, how do people like that get away with it? Acting like an ostrich putting his head in the sand. Well, it's an interesting analogy, that, because um, I was just been reviewing Is Consciousness Primary, um, which is a new volume from the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialist Sciences, and Gary Schwartz says there are two sorts of science. There's eagle science, where you take a big view you know, yeah. from above. And then there's ostrich science, when you refuse yeah. to look anything. And so I rather like this analogy of ostrich science. Yeah, yeah. But also, as you say, the, the telescope analogy is, is brilliant. Not least because Galileo was, I mean, he was a great scientist. He was one of the first people who... who uh, that's where Western science began, more or less, or I mean, thereabouts. And, and, and then at that time, it was the people from the church who were the ostriches. And, and this time, it's the other way around. Well, that's, so that's the irony, because science mm. should be about open-minded curiosity mm. and, and looking at the evidence. It should be evidence-based. And so what we're suggesting is that the evidence base for a science of consciousness needs to be widened and deepened. Mm. And, and more if sort of epistemologically, which is how we know things, um, we need to reinstate um, the Greek concept of gnosis, um, which is this direct, immediate knowing of deeper structures of reality, which you know, is example um, you know, from Federico Fagin's, Fagin's new book, um, Silicon. He, he's the he's inventor of the um, Intel microprocessor who had... Uh, exactly the kind of um, you know gnosis experience, um, which completely flipped his view. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes, um, Jeffrey Kripal, I don't know whether you know his work. He's he's got a book called The Flip, and that's actually what we need to happen: is for lots of people to have personal experiences that are undeniable. And then they flip into a different view of consciousness and life. Yeah. What's fascinating when you, when you mention we need to have a lot of people with these experiences is that 
near-death experiences have become much more common or much more documented because of the, the medical science ability to resuscitate people, which began in the 60s, more or less. So, I mean, there are millions and millions of people today who have had these experiences. It's very difficult to just to just refute them and just dismiss them. And that's well, central. I, think... I mean, I've, I've read this, this uh, layman's report uh, uh, or layman's guide to the Galileo Commission, and, and, and I know that you are talking a lot about NDEs in that, in that guide. Well, you, you may know that the most recent publication on this, which has received a lot of publicity, is Bruce Grayson's book, After. And mm. Bruce Grayson was, was a professor in neurobehavioral sciences and psychiatry at the University Virginia. of Virginia. Uh, yeah. And he, he, he draws on 50 years of research and 100 papers he's written and other books he's written and the Grayson scale, um, which is all about what is a near-death experience? How can you identify one? And, and so I think that, that they, at that level, um, the, the evidence is being taken seriously. Um, but but we, we need to drill down, I think, to know to this assumption, um, which most people make, um, and it's the standard view in, in journalism as well, um, mm -hmm. that the brain is entirely responsible for the production of consciousness. Yeah, we are so conditioned to, to believing that. I mean, it's, we, this, this is what we are taught in school for one thing. So it's, it's very difficult to break that. But as you say, well, sometimes paradigm shifts happen actually. So let's, let's just hope for that. So what is science to you? If you would, if you would uh, define it in your words, uh, because this is all about bridging the, the gap between science and spirituality and, and, and also you have mentioned all these disciplines that we talk about, psychiatry, psychology, medicine, physics, biology. What's your take on, on our dividing this into different disciplines? That's one question. And the second question is, is uh, if we are going to bridge this gap between this, this material, materialistic view and, and a more holistic view where spiritual, the spiritual realm is, is, is a natural part of the whole thing, how would you describe that? So. Well, I think you big well, science, I, think, I guess. Yes, I think one needs to go back to the origins of science, um, or the, the current scientific worldview in the 17th century. And um, with, you know, we mentioned Galileo, it's sort of Galileo, there's Newton, um, there's Descartes, um, there's Locke. There are various people who were involved in, in formulating this. And maybe the most important distinction that they made at the time was between what they called primary and secondary qualities. And so a primary quality is what you can see, weigh, touch, measure. And the secondary quality like taste um, or any, anything to do with the senses and perception and consciousness, that's, that's secondary. And the primary produces the secondary. So philosophically, it means that the mind produces the brain, brain produces consciousness. This is the logic of it. And what, what, it, what it does is it removes the observer in Schrodinger, I realized this in an essay called Nature and the Greeks. And, and if you remove the observer, then you, you sort of sliced out the, an essential aspect of reality. And the way that science developed is, is towards quantification, obviously repetition in the scientific method um, um, of experiments and so that anybody can prove um, something anywhere in the world as Marilyn Monk often says when she's explaining her view. Um, and, but the, the, the point to retain is that the outer is primary, matter is primary. So anything inner or the mind or consciousness is to be explained 
and by the primacy of matter. So that, that's what that's the point I wanted to make very, very clear, uh, because that's what's been driving um, the development of scientific epistemology and then in the 20th century had a philosophy of positivism, which tried to get rid of metaphysics and said, there's no such thing as metaphysics, it's all nonsense. Um, and, uh, but that, that actually has been undermined because the, the work of, uh, the current work of Ian McGilchrist, for instance, the work of Nicholas Maxwell, the work of um, E.A. Burt, uh, Metaphysical Foundations in Modern Science, Willis Harmon in the 1990s, uh, R.G. Collingwood at Oxford in 1940's essay on metaphysics. And what's, what's very, very clear is that you can't do science without a philosophy. You have to have logic, you have to have ways of knowing, and there are different levels of knowing. And so we need, that's what I wanted to drill down on. So science as um, in its pure form is simply an approach um, a systematic approach to data and repeatability. And, and most of it is based on quantification and statistics. And so the, the qualitative aspect, the qualia that we experience as philosophers and psychologists yeah. call this, um, it is, it is something that is secondary to this notion of quantification, what René Guénon called the reign of quantity. And so if you look, if you were to say, well, science as presently constituted looks mainly from the outside in, you could then say, well, spirituality is complementary in that it looks um, from the inside out. Yeah. But as soon as you think about this more carefully, you realize that science also depends on consciousness and the structures of consciousness, meaning, theories, models, all of which are produced and generated by, by consciousness. And so as Max Planck and Schrodinger and Volkan Pauli and various of the other, um, Henry Stapp, they realize you, you can't take consciousness out of the equation. And the most recent thing I read on this, which was very interesting, was an essay by Edward Close. And he's a physicist. So I can't understand the mathematics of what he said, but he said the theory of everything cannot exclude consciousness. That's what's missing. And, and people have been trying to create a theory of everything just on a material basis. Uh, but you, you, you can't close the loop, as it were, without including consciousness. So, so I see the, the relationship between science and spirituality as, as basically a complementary one. And, and uh, if you were looking at Marilyn Monkson, it's the scientist, the poet, and the mystic. So the, the poet is the artist, can it sound with beauty? The scientist is the, the measurer, the, the objective part of us. And then the, the mystic is the subjective part that ex can experience gnosis, can experience uh, what happens in near death and mystical experience. And that we are consciousness. We are the one. The one is already within us. Do you believe that consciousness precedes matter? That it is, comes in that order? Well, I don't know that we know enough to be able to say it's like a mystery, uh, you know, yeah. to be able to make a definitive statement. And so what, what's been happening um, is that people um, have been insisting on at least the fundamental nature of consciousness, if not the primacy of consciousness. So obviously to go to the primacy of consciousness is a step beyond saying consciousness is fundamental. And we actually had in the scientific and medical network 
we produced a manifesto to this effect you know, about 20 years ago. We had a small group working on this. It was a kind of precursor to the, um, the Galileo Commission. And, and so I think the, what, what has to go um, philosophically and scientifically is this insistence on the primacy of matter. Hmm. Um, but the, the, the difficulty for, for scientists is to, is to square that idea with the current narrative and cosmological story which has consciousness emerging from material complexity yeah. um, as the story. And, but it's a bit I mean, counterintuitive. If you're not a scientist, it's, it's very counterintuitive actually to think of it that, that way, that, that matter is, is all there is in a way. It's like, I know you, you mentioned Occam's razor in that guide as well. And I've actually tried to write a little essay on, on that. And I used Occam's razor. And you, in that lay, layman's guide, you're a bit critical to, to, to the use of Occam's razor, which is a method where, whereby you come to the conclusion that the, the simplest explanation is the right one, uh, basically. And uh, Well, and, I sometimes that... call it Occam's hatchet um, yeah. rather than Occam's razor, because I agree in the principle of parsimony, which is what it's about, and simplicity. But what it's often, it's often used as a restatement of reductionism, mm. um, yeah. to say that reductionism as a method and the conclusions of reductionism, the whole can be reduced to the sum of its parts, um, is true, represents truth. And it doesn't. Um, because, yeah, because, it, because it reduces the, the experience of the experiencer. Well, it certainly, certainly does that. Um, but it also, it's, it's a methodological idea that, that you arrive at truth um, through reductionism and mechanism and materialism. And you, you arrive at a view through that, and, and it's a view um, which is conditioned by that method, but you can't logically say that is the truth. Mm. No. Well, when I, when I used that, <laughs> tried, did my little trial there, um, I used it, I enhanced it a little bit because I added intuition to, to the, the razor. And if you use intuition, I came to the conclusion that it's actually the simplest explanation to it, whether we are, uh, whether consciousness is, is non-local and, and non-material, uh, uh, or it is the other way around, that we're, we're only randomly assembled flesh robots, so to speak. The, most, the more simple explanation intuitively is that we are more than matter, because it's, I think, meaning, purpose and meaning is the default uh, mode, so to speak within us uh, and that's of course only philosophically speaking I'm, I'm not a scientist but uh, i think it's very small children know this and and then they are talked out of it i think that's point. true but, uh, but i i i also think that we need to come back to this this huge power or the mechanistic metaphor and um, and this goes back to the 17th century the idea that the world is a machine and um, that that the world is best understood as a machine which is originally clockwork um, it was a clock argument from design. And so Newton's universe, as it were, is a clockwork mechanical universe in which everything is determined. We now know that's not true because of you know, quantum theory. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore the brain is then, um, originally it was at the end of the 19th century, it was a kind of telegraph station. And then of course now it becomes a computer. And so, so the, and the, and the, a lot of sophisticated people working in AI will we'll simply say that 
you know, we are biochemical machines. That's it. We enable the essence of the human is can be understood mechanistically and consciousness can be understood mechanistically as well. And so I think we have a kind of metaphysical um, battle going on here um, to avoid the reductionist idea or to transcend the reductionist idea that we can be explained simply in biochemical terms. So for instance, if you come back to the beginning of our conversation, um, if I, this morning I've just been reading a new book on life after death, um, there can't be any life after death or consciousness after death if you take a mechanistic materialistic view. It's just impossible in principle. Yeah. And yet there is a lot of evidence in this direction. So what do you do? How do you explain this? And if, you, if we do survive death um, and we have this transcendent um, uh, divine essence to us, then we are, we are not simply biological machines. There may be a biolog, there obviously is a biological aspect um, to us, but then the biology itself should be understood in terms of the, me the metaphor of the organism and systems, levels of systems within an organism, holons if you like, rather than the machine. So we need to get rid of this idea um, that, the, that the truth can be arrived at through mechanistic metaphor. It's what Rupert Sheldrake calls mechanomorphism. Mm -hmm. Not anthropomorphism, but mechanomorphism. Yeah, he's brilliant. I love him. Uh, yeah, maybe it's, well, or not maybe, I, I'm, I'm convinced that it's fear behind this uh, rejection of, of all these, these ideas that you're talking about here, because people are, of course, very afraid of... of uh, of shedding their old world views and and also if they're scientists they're they're afraid of losing funding for instance so they don't want to go that go walk that path um no i think that's the, true i mean fear yeah. of loss of reputation funding uh, but then it's it it, it depends on the, what is regarded as credible credible mm. or plausible and 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 that changes obviously with with advances in knowledge and so I think what part of our job is, is to make um, these areas more credible and acceptable. And if you look at the people who have taken them seriously in the past, um, you know, like the presidents of the Society for Psychical Research, for instance, it includes numerous fellows of the Royal Society and even Nobel Prize winners. And these aren't stupid people. Mm. You know, they're not just taken in. Um, it's almost... I think it's true to say that anyone who looks at the evidence impartially and thoroughly, you know, arrives at the conclusion that you can't just write it all off. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, it's, it's really, uh, I mean, maybe they are afraid that um, if this other view, this, this more holistic view, this view that spirituality is, is real, if it's true, then, then, then the material worldview is completely false. So they're, they're afraid of, of getting rid of of that whole um, uh, concept, but as you say, I mean, of course, the, mat the the material world is also true. I mean, that it's nothing false about it. Or you you can say philosophically, in some philosophies and some religions, it's, you're talking about that it's an illusion, and in a way, it might you might call it an illusion, but it's I mean, it's real enough. It, you, if you, you cut yourself with a knife, it hurts, and I mean, and you can taste chocolate and everything. So it's it's of course it's real, but this new enhanced view of of how the world functions should make these scientists happy because it makes it so much more interesting and it opens up so many doors and it makes life so much more fascinating. Yes, I, 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 no, I agree. And obviously what, what, what we're talking about here in terms of a paradigm shift 
is always an expansion of our view. It's not a contraction. Uh, it's yeah. an expansion. So, so that what we already know will be reframed, recontextualized, and put into a larger picture. And, and so in that sense, there's nothing to be afraid of. But I think that there is a residual equation of religion with superstition and belief and there not being any evidence for it. It's the kind of Richard Dawkins, the, the new atheists, and yeah. they, 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 they take that view. Um, but I think what's missing here, and it's also missing from a lot of conventional religion, is the mystical um, Gnostic aspect um, where people know from experience, like, like Federico we were talking about, and mm. it, it, he said the experience hit me with a force of truth. In other words, he, he couldn't not apprehend this as truth. Yeah. And, and, that, and you see, the, the Greeks, and you know, we have a Greek colleague, in fact, two Greek colleagues on the Galileo Commission um, steering group appropriately, um, and they regarded Gnosis and indeed, the early Christian fathers regarded Gnosis as a superior form of knowing, a higher, deeper form of knowing, because you knew intuitively, using your, your word, um, immediately, directly, um, that you and the divine were one, or the transcendent, if you want to use a different language. And um, whereas reason and analysis um, is is discursive and indirect. And so the level of, um, of logic and reason um, is, is not one of experience. It's, it's analyzing and structuring your experience. Mm. So mm. if we could recover this, you know, know thyself, it said in Delphi, and thou shalt know the universe, the hermetic view that the uh, as above, so below, as within, mm. so without. Exactly. And so and I think our deeper science of consciousness is really an attempt to recover this lost tradition. Yes, uh, it's much like when you have been very much in love, and most of us have, I think. And when you come out of that, uh, that's the difference between between having this experience and experience, and it's extremely true. It's I mean, it's more real than anything you have ever experienced when you're in it. And then you get out of it and then you start analyzing and you reduce it and deduct it and, and you kind of, uh, well, it was just, uh, I, no, I wasn't really in love and I, I can't understand why I was in love with her. And I mean, it's, it's all, it's very strange. You, you, I think you've heard Bruce Lipton talk about uh, the honeymoon effect and all those, those things. That yes, I think there's oxytocin effect in, in there as well, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe it could be. I, I think you do, do, but it's do. like you you're in the now you're in the now moment you're you're present and you 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 just you're, you're just there it's like meditation you know you're you're present in the moment and then you just realize that you exist that you're here and all that thinking doesn't really matter you don't have to think i mean you don't have to analyze you just know things that's what well that's what all, all the great sages say we need to be in the present moment yeah. But I, I feel one needs to go. One needs to go from being in love to standing in love, as somebody put yeah. it. In, yeah. in other words, the, the cultivation of love. You get a kind of start by falling in love, and then the real work starts. You know, when you, as my my wife said to me, they, when you marry someone, um, you've got someone to annoy you every day, and, and then we have all these little <laughs> foibles. Each we all have our slightly different way of doing things, of even washing up and that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so you really have to bring sense of humor and proportion into 
into this. And, and the, the, but the love, the love is still is still there. Yeah. Well, it's of course it's different layers. It's I mean it's it's more it gets deeper when you mm. when you stand in love, as you say. The first the thing I was talking about was perhaps infatuation. And, and that yeah. Uh, yeah. phase and all that. But actually, yeah. talking of which, Anders, we should mention here that all these experiences of light um, that people have in the NDE, for instance, or yeah. in the mystical state, they're also experiences of love. Um, and you can't actually separate the light from the love. One is the heart of the other, or the, 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 the light is the, the light of the heart, if you like. And so, so the, these, the, they're undifferentiated. And this is why these experiences have such a transformative effect. And, and, and in, the, in the old mystery schools, um, this was part of initiation, that people would know that they had an immortal uh, essence and spirit uh, at their center, and not just read about it, they knew. Yeah. Or they knew, if you like, with a gnosis. <laughs> yes, that's good. Yeah, the, the L word is is probably a bit difficult to introduce into the to take into into the uh, the scientific world. Talking about love. Well, I think there's there's yeah, the Templeton Foundation has um, sponsored quite a bit of research into these areas. So there's research on forgiveness, um, and there's research on love. There's um, Stephen Post um, at um, uh, forget which university he is, but uh, he he started with Sir John Templeton, the Institute for Unlimited Love. Hmm. He said, and Sir John said, we don't want just love, we want unlimited love. You know, yes. we want the, proper, the real thing here. And Unconditional up, love. Yes, he set it up not long before he passed over. And he, he's an, he was an extraordinary um, man who lived until, you know, he was nearly 96. Hmm. And, and he said uh, his, his vision has, has funded a lot of this, um, what you might call, research and spirituality yeah yeah i guess this unconditional love is is the thing that 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 repeats itself that that everyone who has had these deep experiences talk about and the ears or other out-of-body experiencers or deep meditation well, the, the, we all talk the, about unconditional love well the person who has inspired me most peter dunoff or bain saduno to give him his spiritual name um, he he has these five principles, and love is the first of the principles, followed by wisdom, truth, justice, and virtue or goodness. These are the five essential principles. And he says, love brings life. And by love, I don't just mean sentiment. I mean, it holds the whole universe together. So interestingly, mm -hmm. the, the French for gravitation is attraction. Yeah. And so it's, it's the attractive force. And so I think that I think we need a we need a new language of love um, because that's actually the answer to a lot of our problems if we were to put it into practice. Uh, exactly. We, we can see it as if as if Gaia loves us. Our planet Gaia loves us because it attracts us. Well we I think we better get a get a move on and do some loving back. Yeah, or else, and, uh, that's what we, I mean. We might, we might get thrown off as a as an undesirable. Yeah. Okay, this is a question where you might not want to go, uh, but anyway, I'll give it a shot. If the brain filters consciousness rather than produce produces it, as already, as you said, William James said in the 1890s, and then it's come back, this, this notion, this concept, what does that say about the origins of humankind, life, and, and the theory of evolution? 
because I mean, evolution at the core of evolution, the material evolution thinking is that, that, I mean, the brain was nothing from the beginning, of course, and everything emanates from there and it's all matter. But if there is some kind of consciousness in the, in the unified field or whatever you want to call it out there that we can access rather than produce, then what does that say about evolution? And, and as I said, the origins of, of human. Well, I think I, I'll just frame this in, in terms of the philosophy of Alfred North Whitehead. Um, it was notoriously difficult to read. His main work is called Process and Reality. But the epilogue is, is an easy idea to understand, which is that there are two natures of the divine. Um, there is the transcendent nature and the consequent nature. And when you talk about evolution, you're talking about the consequent nature, which represents becoming, the whole process of becoming. When you talk about the transcendent nature, and the Upanishads refer, refer to this as well, um, then you're talking about something that is beyond time, that's beyond, beyond space and time. It's a different dimension altogether. And, and that doesn't, is not subject to evolution. The consequent nature is. And so you get this process of emergence. And a lot of people say, well, everything is emergence. And you now you get this whole process of complexification, it's emergence. Um, but I think that misses out um, you know, this other aspect, which spirituality and religion have always insisted upon, um, which is the transcendent. And the, the Upanishads say that if you, if you go only with the transcendent, you fall into deep darkness. And if you, if you go only with the imminent, um, which is the consequent here, um, then you fall into deep darkness. And so I think the, 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 the mystic will, will tell you, and this is the complementary aspect, that, that the, the, underlying, the ultimate reality by their experience is consciousness with the capital C. Uh, and that structures the whole material evolutionary process. Um, and I think the, in terms of the soul, um, which is another kind of you know, idea, I think Tim Freak has a very interesting take on this um, because he, he talks about the soul as also evolving. Um, and I think there is a neat, that's what Alfred Russell Wallace um, also said, he was the co-founder of natural selection with Darwin. He said the spiritual evolution as well as material evolution. And, uh, and so you, you have to add this other dimension if you're really going to be able to understand what it means to be conscious and the true role of consciousness and mind in the universe. Yeah. So there are a couple of reading tips there, <laughs> I guess, for those who want to dive deeper into this. Uh, fascinating. So... Uh, if we look now a little bit forward here and see what what's what your commission is is uh, will be able to to achieve. Um, well, firstly, if you, if you ask, you you mentioned before that that scientists who, who reject these ideas uh, uh, publicly, they will if you talk to them at the dinner table, they will admit to some kind of uh, well, some of also, them, some of them, yes. Yeah. Uh, but th there are there are. Um, uh, surveys being done, aren't there? There have been some surveys uh, uh, 100 years ago and, 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 and now again, uh, where you, where, where scientists have been asked whether they believe in an eternal soul, for instance, and, and, and those things, or whether they are atheists or agnostic. What, what do these, what do these surveys show? 
Has has there been any well any um, movement? We did a we did surveys ourselves actually about five years okay. ago, five or six years ago, and we took we we had Ipsos Mori doing a survey of a thousand scientific medical background engineering background people in the UK, France, and Germany, and and uh, we asked them a series of questions not only about their attitudes to science and spirituality, science and religion. Um, but also whether they'd had any experiences themselves um, and whether they thought there was good evidence for, let's say, children remember previous lives. Um, and and where, what, what you could see was that the people who replied as atheists and agnostics said there wasn't any good evidence, even mm. though there is. In fact, they just, don't, they just haven't looked through that particular telescope. Um, and about 50% of um, the the people surveyed were were open to um, the, the spiritual view, and so in other words, the the purely materialist view was in the minority. If you if you actually look at the look at the whole all the figures, mm -hmm. whereas mm -hmm. the mainstream, um, you would expect this not to be true, and, uh, and it is true that if you look at the Royal Society and the American Academy of Sciences, um, then you 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 get a different picture. You get actually more. Um, atheists, um, but then you see, you then have to think about well, what's the, and particularly in the in the states, you know, what what's the landscape there? Yeah, um, because you've got really a, a, a strong creationist and evolutionist um, tension. You know, you've got the creationists, you know, which and evangelicals were very very strong in the U.S. and they're not nearly That's as true. strong in the in the U.K. and probably in Sweden. And then in France, you've got in Italy, you've got a different landscape because you've got Catholicism. Yeah. And, and so people are reacting against Catholicism. Um, so you would that, have to ask differently in those countries. Well, yes. And, and, and there's, you know, so there have been surveys done at, at uh, Rice University um, looking at secularity and, and science in different cultures, mm -hmm. including India. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that so the so I think it's a, it's a nuanced answer depending on the culture, and um, and there is a sort of public intellectual um, position in France, for instance, where it's really you know it's very respectable to be an atheist um, and to be vociferously atheist and to to try and suppress any debate. And I've seen this happening with friends of mine. Um, you're not allowed not allowed to question that position otherwise we just go straight back to the medieval superstition mm. which is obviously you know, none of us wants to do no how has the galileo commission been received so far you haven't been had, well we've uh, we, we've had a lot of interest in our webinars and in fact we've got another one coming up on on saturday and, and these have been associated or summits rather been associated with the launch of various significant books. And um, so we've got the next big book launch we've got coming up is for a trilogy by Gail Kimball um, on the 15th of May. And then in mid-July, we'll do an event for Consciousness Unbound, which is the latest um, volume to come out of the University of Virginia and Ed Edward Kelly and, and his colleagues. The, uh, the earlier two are Irreducible Mind and Beyond Physicalism. And the, these are the these are among the go-to books in the area because of the rigor of the science and philosophy in them, and the evidence base. Mm -hmm. Do you think? So we I are, think. 
Yes. Yeah. We're, we're getting closer to a break, some kind of breaking breaking point, or or, or what you. Well, I my my feeling is that the is that that and this is why we've set up a group, um, as you know, within the Galileo Commission of communicators and journalists that 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 yes. we we need we need a uh, a marketing and publicity and communications initiative here, based around some very simple messages, because there are very few people who either will take the time or have the inclination to read 500 page books. And, and if, you're, if, you're, if you're paid up scientific materialist, I mean, the last thing you'd want to read was, was a volume undermining your views. <laughs> um, uh, and so, I mean, a few people, the, the few people who are on Galileo Commission advisory um, capacity like um, Marjorie Willicott would be an example. Um, are people who've had these former these formative flip experiences and then even though they were trained in scientific materialism they realize it's not complete after mm -hmm. they've had this experience and federico fagin um, would be another example and so there's a <clears throat> there's a critical role to experience here in terms of really changing your worldview and um, so the the, the the difficulty is this kind of entrenched view um, and the fact that the entrenched view is regarded as scientific rather than philosophical yeah. uh, in other words vast majority of scientists don't know that they're making assumptions about consciousness and the brain they just take it as a fact it's a fact that the consciousness is produced by the brain we don't need to look into it it's obvious and indeed there is a lot of evidence you know which you could use to back up that view but that means ignoring the, 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 the outer range of evidence or the extended range of evidence um, where this view cannot get a handle on the phenomena and the evidence. It just simply cannot um, explain it at all. And I think, I think an interesting, and I just started to think about this because um, I haven't read the book yet, there's a book by Shelley Joy, J-O-Y-E, called The Electromagnetic Brain. And, and, and I, I think there's there's a lot of people cited in this book um, who, who take that sort of model rather than a purely chemical model. Because if you think that consciousness is chemical, then of course it can't come out of the brain. It can't, you know, you can't, you know, you, you can't explain chemistry um, outside the physical system in which it's embedded. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think electromagnetism magnetism is probably, again, only part of the, of the answer here. Um, yeah. Because obviously we know that le the electroencephalogram, you know, goes flat um, when we die, and so electricity we're no longer informed by electricity. Mm. Um, but I think there's more more to it than that. But that must be an aspect of it. Mm. Perhaps there is a critical mass of, of of scientists who need to flip before this can become mainstream. I think, but it's also the question of humanities. And we're, we're looking at trying to reach some people in the humanities on the basis of the work by Jeff Kripal and his book, The Flip, um, and his more recent chapter in this Consciousness Unbound. And because they are all imbued with materialism as well. And, and, and the, the, the thing is that the challenges we face as a species, as a planet, um, are not going to be solved by continuation of materialism and consumerism. We need a spiritual awakening um, so that we understand that we're all deeply connected uh, with each other 
um, and that we're also deeply embedded and connected with natural ecosystems. So I think there's one life, there's one mind, and there's one planet. Yeah, and the essence of us cannot die. Consciousness is non-local and the essence of us cannot die. And if, if these things are, are to become mainstream, if they, when and if they become mainstream, mainstream in the mainstream thinking of, of human, humanity and, and of, of science, what, uh, what will happen? How will that change this world? Well, I've argued in my, my second book, which is now called Resonant Mind, um, that um, all this, we've, all what we've been talking about implies a, an ethic of interconnectedness. Um, and you get this out of the life of you um, in the near-death experience and in after-death communications, that, that we are so deeply connected with each other um, that what we do to someone else, we're effectively doing to ourselves. Um, and if, if people knew that that's, that was a universal spiritual law, um, then a lot of things that people wouldn't even dream of doing anymore. Why would one hurt oneself? Why would, not, why would one not live for the whole in a spirit of service and love and dedication and compassion and care? That's what it's about. And uh, Peter Dunoff said, we're here in the physical world um, to be examined on the law of love and how we apply the law of love. And our, our life review afterwards will... Um, give us a, a result, as it were, as to how we've how we've how we've managed that. That's wonderful, David Lorimer. Your latest book is called uh, "Quest for Wisdom," and it's you can be it can be found on on in the bookstore. Well, on Amazon, but also Amazon. my publisher Eon A E O N Books. Okay, Eon Books, and the website to the to the commission is. GalileoCommission.org, and my own website is davidlorimer.co.uk. Mm. Excellent. David Lorimer, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast, and good luck with the commission, and it's, it's a wonderful endeavor. Thank you very much, and thank you for being part of it as well. I will do what I can. <laughs> Great. Great.